It's lovely to be back together. It's lovely to worship God together. Sense his presence amongst us as we were worshiping. Quite, um, I'm quite bowled over by the word that Herman brought and Sharon. I feel like I should go home now. I feel like they've preached my sermon. <laughs> which is quite a good thing, really. So I'm just filling in a few gaps. Listen, if you hear anything, hear what they said, which is, which is great. So I, I've titled this talk, um, Transformed by Love, Transformed for Purpose. It, I might have said, transformed by love, transformed for love, which would have been as good. The last time I spoke to you, um, I feel that uh, God has been taking me on a journey. I, I've been sort of crying out to him, for him to know me and what that looks like. And it's part of my journey of me longing to know more of him and his love in my life. And uh, quite miraculously, I, I was given these two books. I mentioned one last time by a chap called David ben Benner called Surrender to Love, which I found really, really helpful. And there's, a, there's two sequels to that book. I only have the first one, um, which is also really good. It's called The Gift of Being Yourself. It's quite good to be yourself. It's quite good to be yourself and not someone else or what someone you think they want you to be like. It brings freedom, being yourself. And uh, the last time I spoke to you, we were looking at um, some reasons why the children of Israel didn't want to move into the promised land. And we... I equated that with um, obstacles in our way to being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And I told you about some of the patterns in my life of having to earn and seek God's approval by the things that I did and that I said. And these books have helped me unpack that some a bit. And it's been quite a painful journey finding out my sin traits and patterns of behavior. But in doing that, I'm bringing that, as Sharon encouraged us just now, bringing up my fears and my life, who I am before God, and finding that he doesn't reject me, but that he loves me in it. And that's freeing. And it helps me to know God. And so we looked at two aspects last time. And we said um, that the children of Israel had a wrong view of themselves. Do you, do you remember we said that um, they were self-reliant, independent. They rejected God's advances and plans of caring for them and providing for them. They rejected his plans for their lives they wanted to retain complete control themselves. And how did, how did that work out for them? They were rebellious. And we also said that they not only didn't know themselves, that they didn't know God. They believed God hated them. 
they didn't understand how much he loved them. And if he didn't love them, if they believed that he didn't love them, why would they do or walk with him into a new land? It was a complete anathema to them. And it worked out very badly in their lives. And we commented that if we are to be transformed by the love of God, that there is a need to be vulnerable, as Sharon has just encouraged us to do. I would encourage you the same. To be vulnerable about who we really are. Vulnerable to God and vulnerable to one another. We need to be willing to accept the unconditional love of God and those around us. And this means, this means being real and honest about myself, to myself, and to God. And the issue is this, if I don't fully know who I am or what I am truly like, I cannot fully know God. I cannot fully know God's love for me, and if I don't know God's love for me, and when I say love, I mean experience his love, not just have a belief trait. Because my, my beliefs about God have been very different to my experience about God. Does anybody else relate to that? If I don't know his love, how can I be transformed to be like him? And so um, this, this second book about the gift of, your, of being yourself is, is very helpful. And he says, I, I thought God wanted me to share this with you, so... That's what I'm going to do right now. He says, um, one tool that many people have found helpful in identifying basic sin tendencies is an ancient approach to understanding personality called the Enneagram. Unlike classifications of personality that are based on traits, the organizing principle of the Enneagram is deeper and less attractive. It zeroes in on the fatal flaws or basic sin of each of nine personality types. No one should work with the Enneagram if what they seek is flattery. But no one should fail to do so if what they seek is deep knowing of self. Our sinfulness is never reducible to one temptation. But the assumption behind the Enneagram is that underlying everything we do is one major temptation that is particular to us, to you and to me. And until we see it for what it is, we will inevitably give in to this temptation and live in bondage to it. Well, I sign up for that. The core sins identified by the Enneagram are each associated with a core need. The needs are basic human needs, such as need for love, for security, or for perfection. The sin consists in making these something of ultimate value that is making them into God or an idol. So we're going to go through these nine core sin traits. Have a look at them. It's taken me some time to go through them. 
because I identify with every one of them. <laughs> but I've come to an understanding that one in particular is me. See where you fit. Right, ones need to be perfect. And discovering that neither they nor anyone else in the world is perfect are tempted by self-righteous anger. A good biblical example of this type is Paul. Twos need to be loved and needed. And their competence in making this happen sets them up for pride. Martha is a good example of a two. Threes need to be successful and are tempted to deceit as they do whatever they have to do to avoid failure and appear in the best possible light. Jacob illustrates this type. Fours. Fours need to be special. Fours need to be special and are tempted toward envy, escapist fantasy and a compromise of authenticity. Joseph, the Old Testament patriarch, illustrates this type. Fives need knowledge, long for fulfillment, and are tempted by greed, stinginess, and critical detachment. Example given is Thomas. Six, sixes need security, and are tempted by fear, self-doubt, and cowardice. That's a Timothy. Sevens need to avoid pain and are tempted by gluttony and intemperance. Solomon is given as, as the example. Eights need power, self-reliance, and opportunities to be against something and are tempted by lust, arrogance, and the desire to possess and control others. King Saul is a good illustration of an eight. And nines need to maintain emotional peace and avoid initiative and are tempted by laziness, comfortable illusions and being overly accommodating. Now you can't grapple with those in the short space of time that I've read them. I spent hours going over this personally. Because I, I want, so desperately want God to know me. I don't want any hidden part of my life from him. Not, not that there is, you understand. But I, I need to understand that he knows me completely and fully. And I want to be known. Because I want to know him and his love. So I struggled with these. And my... Ears pricked up when Herman started talking about Jacob. Because I, I found that I'm a number three. Threes need to be successful and are tempted to deceit. Ouch. As they do whatever they have to do to avoid failure and appear in the best possible light. It's been such a struggle in my life 
to try and keep this end up of appearing the best to everybody. When I said to Kim, I'm a number three, she, she nodded. She already knew that. That's what I was like. And so it's been helpful to me to be honest before God about my sin type. It's been quite helpful for me to identify Kim's sin type, which I won't say. That was a good move right there. (laughs) We surrender to the love of God found in Jesus Christ, a person. We surrender to a person when we surrender to God. We're not submitting ourselves to a cause. It's so different. He invites us into relationship with him. It's not our way, but his way, in and through us. He's after our hearts in which we encounter his heart. Obedience without his heart is simply following a rule. And there's no joy in that. So I've been quite struck as I've been thinking about this that I started thinking about Peter and I'd just like to quickly run through some aspects of Peter's life. We first meet Peter when um, Jesus encounters Andrew on the beach and Andrew says to to Peter, goes right up to Peter, he says, we found the Messiah. Come and meet the Messiah. And Peter comes and meets him. And we learn some things about Peter. We probably know more about Peter, the disciple, than any of the other disciples. At that time, Israel was occupied by the Romans, a very harsh Brutal regime. Huge taskmasters and tax masters. And Israel wanted them out. And many thought that when the Messiah came, they would overthrow the Roman occupation. And I think Peter fell into that category. He was a fisherman, independent, Self-reliant. Not afraid of hard work. Would fish all night. Jesus comes and says, follow me. And he drops everything for the purpose of following him. And a bit later on, there are many encounters with Peter. But a bit later on, we see Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, saying, who, who do men say that I am? Bear in mind, Peter spent three years with Jesus, close, intimately walking with Jesus. He saw the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, 
the dead raised, demons cast out. He had personal, first-hand knowledge of Jesus. Who do, you, who do men say that I am? Some said that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't have very long to get cocky about that, Peter, because the scriptures tell us in the same chapter, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, <laughs> saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of, of the things of God, but the things of men. I don't want to be hard on Peter here. I think he's the most amazing man. Because lots of us have thought God's got it wrong. His plan's not the right one. Let's move on quickly. They're in the Last Supper, having the Last Supper. Jesus washes their feet. And Peter's watching them. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you're not washing my feet. Jesus says to him, if I don't do this for you, you have no part in me. We know the story that Jesus was showing, the servant-hearted nature of God, and then calling us to be likewise. Peter thought it was too menial for the Messiah to be a servant. And again, Jesus tells them that he's about to go to the cross. He says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So I now say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. With all the mess, with all the failings, our true selves, that we love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, he said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me right now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. 
Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me. Three times. We're not told what Peter felt when Jesus gave him that rebuke. I imagine he felt indignant. Hurt, perhaps. Chastised. We pick, pick the story up in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Caravaggio's picture of Peter's denial a little bit later. But we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Peter do? Jesus is arrested. He gets out his sword and cuts off the servant's ear. Let's have this against the Romans. Let's take it to them. Jesus said no. He heals the servants here. He said, this isn't the reason why I've come. Peter follows him into the the courts of the the, um, high priest. And he follows at a distance. And you know the story. He's warming his hands by a fire. And one of them said to him, this man was also with Jesus. Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you hear the the anger, the reaction, giving way to this wrong belief, this, this sense of being caught out? A little while later, another one said to him, you are also of them. Man, I am not. And about an hour later, another one says, surely this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter says, man, I do not know what you're saying. The rooster crows. Jesus looks at him. Peter remembers. He leaves and he weeps bitterly. Because he's betrayed the Messiah, the Son of God. We're not told what he thinks, but we can make some reasonable assumptions. That he felt regret, remorse, pain. It's possibly shamed by some of the other disciples. I've sort of wondered what core sin type Peter is. I think he's a number eight. Eights need power, self-reliance and opportunities to be against something and are tempted by lust, arrogance and the desire to possess and control others. And the reality is, Peter didn't know himself like we've not known ourselves. Like I'm discovering that, I'm only just beginning to discover some of my true aspects of myself. And we pick the story up where Jesus meets him on the beach. They've been fishing all night because Peter says, 
He's in a bit of a lost state. And he says to some of his friends, let's go fishing. That's what we do when things don't work out right, when we failed. We go back to the default position, what we think we know best. That's what's comfortable to us. So he goes fishing, and he fishes all night. And he doesn't catch a single fish. He can't even fish properly. I wonder what's going through his head. I can't even do this properly. And there's a man on the beach saying, cast your net over the other side and you'll catch some fish. Is this man mad? We've been fishing all night. But they cast the net over the other side. And it tells us that they catch 153 bits big ones, so big they couldn't get the net back in, they had to haul it in. And it's Jesus, they know it's Jesus. And he's cooking fish on a fire with fresh bread. Can you imagine a greater feast than being with the master on the beach having a barbecue? They all know it's Jesus. They have the meal. And we read this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And I just need to say to you, the Greek language has words that we don't have. So when we read the word love, there's numerous words for love in the Greek language. Jesus uses the word to Peter, agapeo, the the unconditional love of God for his children. A love that is undefeatable and unconquerable. Always seeks the highest of the other person, no matter what he or she does. A love that gives without asking anything in return. It's a love that chooses by the will. It's not dependent upon the emotions. The unconditional love of God, agapeo. So when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He says, do you agapeo me? Peter's response is, I filio you. Filio is brotherly attraction and emotion, much less than agape. So let's just read this. When they'd eaten breakfast, by the way, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, and where were you, mate, when I was going to the authorities? As I told you, you would betray me. Where were you when I needed you most? Jesus doesn't say that to him. It's the whole point of the cross. There is forgiveness for all of us at the cross. The scriptures say that this is the restoration of Jesus. I don't believe that. The restoration is is to return somebody to where he was before. This encounter with Jesus transforms him. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. 
Jesus said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filiate you. He said to him, tend my sheep. The third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, he uses the same word, filio, do you filio me? Peter gets upset and he said, Lord, you know that I filio you. He said to him, you know all things, you know that I, I, I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying what, by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That word follow me means be on the same road. Walk with me on this road. Don't walk down another road, because I'm not there. I'm walking down this road. If you want to be on the same road with me, you need to be with me. Have you ever felt like you're walking down a different road to God? Let's invite the band back. We're going to come and worship. And then we're going to break bread together. It's the most amazing passage of Scripture. But God knows Peter in his deepest of failings. As he knows us in our deepest of failings. And when we come to the cross, we come. Knowing who we truly are, not what we think we ought to be. Not what you think I ought to be. But who I truly am.